Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google certificates. Faster my crazy day, my packed commute, all those unread emails in my inbox. But I'm getting stronger, faster, and pushing myself further every day. I don't care if I'm not like everyone else. This punching bag is the best way to end my day. <laughs> Fearless is knowing yoga isn't your style. That's the power of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Federal Employee Program. Learn more about our healthy benefits at fepblue.org slash get more. Hi, and welcome to The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with PSB Research. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the polls driving the news in politics, tech, and pop culture. So, oh boy, we have all kinds of announcements this week. So first of all, welcome new listeners. We know that you're out there. We have lots of new listeners. We're at the top of iTunes, literally at the top of iTunes Figuratively at the top of iTunes, when you go to the iTunes store, there we are, right at the top, right next to Bruce Lee and something, something, football, oh, yeah. something. I, I described this as we are getting the Beyonce Drops a surprise album treatment. And there was somebody uh, on our Facebook page who noted that we are now next to Bruce Lee in this big banner and said, enter the pollsters, was like, suppose, you know, instead of like, enter the dragon. So anyway, I said, oh, that'll probably be the name of our episode today. But I have to warn you, we have some other topics that I think may bump enter the pollsters yes. from the episode. Sorry, title. Rich. We know you're a professional yep. <laughs> name, name, namer. <laughs> that was good. Yes, it was good. But we have some other things, other names that may be even better. Um, so thanks to everybody who made that happen. That was a darn good idea that's come out of this, uh, this week and, uh, or the past few months when we've been working on this. Um, so for new listeners, we are, what we do every week, we have a run through of the polls that come out that week. What we think is interesting. Most of it's political, but not all of it, as you'll see. We try to do some interviews. We've had some really great ones. If you want to go back through the archives and take a look, Christine Matthews, who's a Republican pollster, talked about how Republican women view Trump. Ron Brownstein was our most downloaded interview ever. That was really great. Charlie Cook and Chuck Todd, all three of those really strong interviews. Uh, Kellyanne Conway went directly from being guest co-host of The Pollster to Trump uh, campaign manager. So you can go back and We're, take a our look. Our show's a pretty major stepping stone, I have Ye- to say. Yes, exactly. It's a stop. It's a stop on the on the way up to the top. Uh, so <laughs> Linda Lake, John Sides, Carl Bialik from 538, Nate Cohn from New York Times, The Upshot, who we're going to talk about a lot today. So uh, we've had the heads of Gallup and Pew separately. So curl up with your phone and, and uh, go take a listen. But we may not have so many interviews up from now until the election because we're two busy broads, um, which we might <laughs> rename the show to Broad City. If you listen to NPR Morning Edition on Tuesday, you may have woken up to hear Margie explaining Broad City to Steve Inskeep. <laughs> it was only commute. it was only like six thirty in the morning. I was like, <laughs> he's like, and Broad City is exactly. <laughs> So anyway, so um, that name is taken. So we will not rename our show to Broad City. But (laughs) anyway, I could see how that name would be catchy, I guess. So anyway, the last announcement is that we have a brand new website. It is so pretty. Go take a look. It's thepolsters.com. We haven't really sent people to our website before. Now we are. So go take a look. Um, And we bet you have corrections on all the lists of polling shops. We have the list of all the polling shops, people who do political polling, some public affairs folks, um, the uh, the universities that put out polls, the handicappers and forecasters. We don't have a lot of the data people. That's, you know, sort of the next generation of this. But um, for sure, somebody will find something in there they don't like. So please, <laughs> so we are crowdsourcing it. Feel free to send us an email. Tell us, you know, how you think it needs to be corrected, and we'll try and get to it. Um, so anyway, so those are our announcements. And so what are the but before maybe we do the top lines, we do actually have a song that I think is pretty relevant for one of the big <laughs> topics we're going to talk about today. The 
The waiting is the hardest part. This is a... I think it's really an appropriate theme song for this week, considering that if you've read the New York Times upshot, uh, you heard that there was a, a big story where the uh, Nate Cohn gave four different pollsters uh, a data set, um, a survey that they conducted in Florida um, from the voter file. They uh, then sent this data to a bunch of pollsters, including Margie and my business partner, Patrick. He he did the work for Echelon um, and told us, Wait the survey. And we came to different conclusions about what the survey actually said. We'll talk about it in a minute, but that's why the waiting is the hardest part. That's right. Um, and do we regret playing Landslide a few episodes ago now that the polls are tighter? I say we regret nothing. That's right. And we will explain why we do not in any way regret playing Landslide. We take our cues from Edith Piaf on that. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Uh, so the... We'll talk a little bit about 2016, uh, the email, the email, what, what, the email. Sorry, that was a strong, bad joke. Like, literally nobody who listens to the show is going to get that. Uh, are there emails in the Clinton Foundation, and are they uh, are those these a really big deal to voters? Then, um, as Billy Joel says, sometimes I go to extremes. Who's the most extreme of them all? We'll look at polling about how voters view the uh, extremism, or lack thereof, of these presidential candidates. And finally, because we promised this is not all political polling, we will dig into the biggest issue gripping our nation – Brangel exit. <laughs> I can't even believe <laughs> just I just rolls said off that out loud. The tongue, Brangel it? exit. Where do Brad and Angelina stack up on the world's most admired list next to people like the Queen and Bill Gates? We will assess public opinion on Brexit. <laughs> so first, though, the poll of the week. So you know, a lot of people like to diss millennials that they are uncaring, unloving. Kristen has been sort of the top debunker of these myths since she literally wrote the book on millennials um, called The Selfie Vote. But there's been a new study that shows that millennials are particularly likely to have pets. This was a study by Mintel, a research firm. It was published in The Washington Post. Three-fourths of millennials, or Americans in their 30s is how they're defining them, have dogs, and about half have cats, which, you know, I thought that seemed like pretty high. Overall, it's about 50% have dogs and 35% have cats. Um, and then if they look at – Which, I considering that we've talked on the show a lot about how cats run the internet, I'm actually surprised that cats are not at greater parity with dogs. Yeah. And cats are so much more low-maintenance. I'm a dog person. Let's be clear. I, my sister's possessed cat, Mimi, has like kind of turned me off of cats entirely. Um, but nonetheless, I, I'm surprised at the the cat dog pet gap. Yeah, I know. I mean, and especially if you're a millennial, you're going to go out. You're young. You don't. I mean, you know, you got to get home to walk your dog. It seems a little bit more difficult. But the other thing that they found, and I think for this, they might have defined millennials a little bit uh, slightly differently because the numbers don't seem to quite add up. But men are more likely to have dogs than millennial women. And millennial men are more likely to have cats than millennial women. Yeah, the the, the whole uh, cat lady uh, stereotype Cat boys. It's cat boys. Millennials. <laughs> like half of millennial cat men boys. are cat boys. So. <laughs> That's what I call Beckett, my son. Every time he tries to eat the cat food, I said, are you a cat boy? <laughs> Which he does not think is very funny. But um, but anyway, he may grow up to be one of these young millennial cat boys that are sweeping the nation. So that's our poll of the week. But let's get to serious business. And that's 2016. So. There's been some tightening, you may have heard, that seems to continue to be true, although maybe that's loosened up a little bit, so maybe Clinton's rebound slightly. I think overall the the pattern is still the same. All of the different aggregators and forecasters show Clinton up, whether she's up four or a different amount. The forecasters give her a chance of winning in the 50s to the 80s, depending on which one you talk to. Yeah, and we talked on last week's show about why the different aggregators all come to different conclusions about the percentage chance that Clinton is likely to win. And so right now, I mean, Nate Silver at 538 is, I think, probably the most bearish on Clinton. And, and their models sort of bear this out where 
you know, they predict that if the election were held today, it would essentially be a coin flip. They give Clinton a 53.3% chance of winning in what they call the now cast. Um, the Upshot, which is the New York Times blog um, that covers this stuff and that did the, the survey with Margie and the other polling firms that we'll tackle in a second, they still give Clinton a three out of four chance of winning. Um, Predict-wise, which I believe that's the prediction markets, um, they put Clinton win about the same place. Um, and then the Princeton model, which just uses the states. It doesn't use national Yeah, polling. they show an 81% chance of Clinton. So again, Slate then does sort of an average of the models and comes up with you don't have time to look at different websites you just want one number you one number this is like the uh the kayak.com of <laughs> polling averages you know, like that like the guy who makes that like apparatus where it's like uh, fake hands look searching the internet on, like four computers at a time <laughs> oh, you don't i don't know what you're talking about i'm gonna have to go find this on the internet later that's what that's what slate invents for you so, so you don't the need to go to four different websites election prediction <laughs> um but it's it is certainly true that for a long time and back when we played landslide on the show a few weeks ago we were looking at a landslide that was that is what the polls were saying at that moment you had pennsylvania trump down by 10 you had in ohio trump was suddenly down in the polls um you i mean it you had him down in places like georgia i mean at, at that moment in time it was looking really, really bad for him. There has been a slight rebound. But I, I don't regret, you know, at that point in time saying this is looking like if things stay the same, it would be a landslide. Yeah. I because mean, that's what would happen if the election had been held then. Right. We can't see the future. All we can look at are the polls that are going on at that moment. people think that polls are supposed to be about predicting the future. And they are a snapshot in time. They can give us information about how things might turn out if nothing new happens. But we know that world events are constantly changing. You never know when a bomb is going to go off in New York or when somebody is going to feel like it's too hot outside and, and need to be taken out of an event quickly or when Trump is going to say something bonkers lunatic land. I mean, right. So and the polls now don't reflect the things that have happened over the last couple of days where you have had uh, a couple more tragic police shootings that are in the news or the events in Chelsea and New York. I don't think we're quite seeing the effect of all that stuff in these polls yet either. So, you know, the polls are just going to be a little bit slower to re to reflect some of the movement in the coverage. But even when you look at the states still and Huffington Post has all the states on one page and you can look at all the graphs. And this is why the Princeton rating is better for Clinton, there's still states that Trump needs that are tight. Even if he's up, it's still tight. Places like Georgia. I mean, Georgia, the Huffington Post average has him up uh, three points in uh, you know, in Nevada, they're tied. In North Carolina, um, Clinton's up one in the average. I mean, there was a poll out, I think, yesterday or the day before that had Trump up one in North Carolina that they were pretty excited about. That's not really a sign that you know, he's going gangbusters because these are states that he needs. It's not like there are other states that he's picking up because all these states are moving in a similar pattern. Um, you know, Clinton's up in Michigan. That would be a state that Trump, if Trump could win there, then he could lose someplace else, but he's not winning there. So, yeah. um, so you know, Florida is, you know, Clinton's up in the average by two. So you see this in a variety of places where the states, a lot of them are really tight. That's why they're battlegrounds. But states that are supposed to be you know, really Trump territory are not really – he hasn't put them away at yeah. all. Yeah, and, and these questions about, well, could Trump pull off Wisconsin? I mean, I think as I was walking in here, there was a Marquette poll that had Clinton only up by three in Wisconsin, um, which, hey, look, that's that's not horrible news for Trump, but he needs to be up in at least half of the polls, I think headed into election day, if we're really going to have a shot at this sort of thing. I mean, people, I remember back four years ago, everybody saying, well, maybe Mitt Romney will win Pennsylvania, maybe Mitt Romney will win Wisconsin. But if you looked at the polls of the 10 to 15 polls before election day, Romney was not leading in any of them. He may have been down only two or three, but he wasn't leading in any polls. And right. that's, a, that's a pretty big tip off that like, this isn't going to happen, guys. It's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. So look, it could still happen. You know, I, I understand why Nate Silver is still more convinced that, you know, Donald Trump has a real shot. But 
there's just not a ton in the state polling that makes me think, yeah, Trump's got a really, really, really great shot unless something big changes. And Fox News put out last night um, their electoral college map of what states they think fall into what categories. And their map, I, I don't think, was overly favorable to Trump. I know what the, the reputation of Fox News is. But like the folks who put together this map, I think, are, are, were looking at good data. And, um, you know, the only state on their map that I really disagreed with was they had Colorado as a toss up. And I, I don't Colorado think it's a toss up. Been, That's yeah. a lean down. Democrat for sure. Yeah. Um, but they had Clinton starting out at 260 electoral votes yeah. within like 100 toss up. So, I mean, that means every toss up has to break Trump's way, which is just still really hard to imagine. So, I know, I mean, I know the polls are not looking as good for Hillary Clinton as of the last two weeks. There's certainly a chance that Trump could win. I think that the, the average of the averages saying there's a two to one chance it's Clinton. But Trump has a one out of three shot. Like, I, that seems reasonable sure. to me based on all right. of the data. Um, but I'd still rather be her than him. Right. I mean, what this does mean, this tightening that you've seen, is it means better chances for Republicans in the Senate because uh, you have a lot of Republican senators or uh, candidates in these battleground states who are running a little bit better than Trump, but um, – you know, will still suffer if Trump loses that state very, very badly. So the upshot has uh, an, uh, a forecast of what the Senate will look like. And right now they're showing Republicans with a majority, you know, with like I think a 53% chance of holding on um, to the Senate. And that's a little bit different than what they've been showing over the last few weeks where they've been showing Democrats generally doing better than Republicans in the Senate. And I think that's a result of this tightening that's been going on where that extra couple points won't flip the states for Trump, but it can flip a, you know, Richard Burr, it can flip some of these Republican senators who are kind of vulnerable, can make them maybe slightly less vulnerable for a moment. We'll see. I mean, it's still, it's still a nail biter in the Senate, obviously. Yeah. Um, so the other issue that is, you know, well, we, we talk a lot about Trump and what people think about Trump. So we're, we're going to take a brief time this week to dig into what people think about Hillary Clinton. A lot of the news stories have said, does Hillary Clinton need to kind of reintroduce herself to voters or has she been too negative on Trump, needs to get back to her own message? And of course, we're headed into the, the first big presidential debate. Next time Margie and I sit down to record, the first debate will be in the history books and Whoa. we will no doubt have plenty to talk about. Whoa. I'm really excited about this episode <laughs> for next week. Um, but, but I really like, by the way, if you've not listened to 538's podcast, they gave us a very lovely shout out. Thank you, Jody. Um, and they asked all folks at the other election podcast to provide a question about what people thought they should ask Trump at the debate. And Kristen had a good question. I wanted them to ask what, basically. You had a what, serious question. Other people had kind of goofy I know, questions. Someone had a question about like, Lord of the Rings. And I mean, I was just like, I felt mine was like, what is your take on America's appropriate role in the world? I mean, it wasn't, it was a little. Right. Should, are, are you, you know, no, but your question was right. Like, should we be, you know, like out there actually taking serious tough action and be a tough guy? Or are we, should we not get involved? We can't be both. So which is it? Yeah. I mean, the, the, well, and, and I think actually a smart politician, the response would be, I think we can do the former, you know, the, the question was, Depends you know, on you, case by case. you say that you want America to be this great big, big boy on the block, like running the world again, that America's become weak and we need to be strong. On the other hand, you're very critical of the idea of meddling in foreign conflicts and sort of, well, whatever, let Russia expand its sphere of influence and who cares and um, let China deal with China. We shouldn't be, you know, whatever. It's um, easy, Kristen. Russia should do whatever they want and... Trump's America take will on everywhere else. be great because <laughs> obviously, Trump, anyways, we're like stuff of bit. my nightmares. Um, but I mean, it, look, a savvy politician could take that question and, of course, say, "I think that America can be great and dominant, and that the world is safer when America is in a strong position." But that doesn't mean that we should just go intervene everywhere. We need to think really critically about American interests before we do, and have clear objectives about how. We Kristen's succeed. making Ooh, a very like Kristen. strong Chris, Trump face. Anderson, like. I am making Trump face. Anderson, twenty thirty two. You heard it here first. But um, no. So so anyhow, I was it was nice to be able to throw that in there, and I'm hopeful that Lester Holt will perhaps include yes. it. So maybe somebody 
helping out Lester Holt listens to one of these two shows. Yeah, and, and, like, hey, and I have a great idea. And as we also heard, by the way, Gary Johnson will not be on stage, nor will Jill Stein. And that's a polling-related thing because it means, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, Gary Johnson did not get enough in the polls to make the stage. Um, and there's still question about whether that's appropriate or not or was 15% the appropriate threshold you have to meet to get on the stage. Um this is it's a it's a hard call to make, but of course you know the more people you put on stage, as we saw from the Republican debates, then the less time everybody else gets. And if we really think that it's going to be either Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump that wins, does it make sense then to have that high bar so that you're maximizing the amount of time that the eventual president of the United States is being asked questions? Right, and Trump's never been in a head-to-head debate. I know. Ugh. So we said we were going to talk about Hillary Clinton instead of Donald Trump. Yes, sorry. And we we failed. Gosh, isn't that just the perfect 2016? Like, it's just like a metaphor, like right there. Here's our segment about Hillary Clinton. Here's our segment about Hillary Clinton. Let's talk about Donald Trump for an hour. Um, So some polls, Gallup has been asking, um, and remember, Gallup is out of the business of asking the horse race question. Gallup no longer does this daily tracking of who's up and who's down who's winning, who's behind. So that's one of the things that's been missing this cycle. But they are still asking questions about the candidates. And they asked, what have you seen, read, or heard about Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump? Um, and they they aggregated all of the results from July 17th, which is, uh, you know, right before I think the Republican convention started, mm-hmm. through September 18th. And they made word clouds. And for Donald Trump, the word cloud is, you know, speech, president, immigration. Those are the biggest words. Lots right. of stuff kind of in there. For Hillary, for Hillary Clinton, there is one word, and it just dominates this word cloud, and it is email. That is what people have heard about Hillary Clinton for the last two months. I see Hillary Clinton. I see health, scandal, foundation, pneumonia, convention speech. I mean, so say what you will about Donald Trump. The things in his side are positions he has taken. Right. Agree or disagree with right, them. Right, right, right. Those are our issue positions. I see, yeah, immigration stuff. But, like, it's harder to find issue positions in the Hillary Clinton one, which is not a good place for her since we've talked on this show before about how she actually wins on the question of who do you trust more to handle issue X. Yeah, no, it's But t- that's not what's defining the, the conversation. Yeah, and then Gallup also breaks out just the last couple weeks, and you can see a shift in the words that people use. Uh, what's What have you seen, read, or heard about Hillary Clinton? And a couple weeks ago, it was email, lies, scandal, and interview. And then in the past week, it was health, pneumonia, sick, issue. I don't know why there's bear. Is that what you're looking yes. at? Yes. <laughs> Margie just saw me make another weird face. And it's under Trump's uh, open ends. <laughs> the word bear is there. Maybe it's right to bear arms. I don't know. I don't know what that is. Maybe? I don't know what I, that is. But then why wouldn't arms be the word? I don't know. I don't know. If he bear. if he spoke about bears, if he made a really fiery speech about bears, I missed it. talk about bears? It's possible. I missed an entire I think story. we would have missed like a whole day about I'm bears. I'm pretty up on the bear beat, though. <laughs> I mean, I'm, Twitter would have been able – you wouldn't have been able to ignore that on Twitter. People were talking about bears no. for a couple of days. But um, but anyway, that's what people have told Gallup. We had, had Skittles. Yeah. We had – what are other – but not bears. Yeah. All right. Well, I don't know. Unskew the word cloud. <laughs> Unskew the word cloud. But um, but it's pretty interesting. And they also, uh, you know, there's a the- maybe, and I don't know if I have the dates right. So someone listening to this can fact check me on this. It's just a theory, um, where if you also look at it, it has a Gallup rolling average about how much, you know, did you read, hear, or see anything about Hillary Clinton in the last day or two? That it's almost always more about Trump. People have heard, had more recall about stuff about Trump than about Clinton. Basically, every time in the last few weeks, except during the uh, Democratic convention and the last week, right, when there was the health issue. And is that part of the reason that she had a bit of a rebound in some of the polls, that there was a backlash against all the insanity around that? I don't I don't know if we can cut it that fine, if we can have that kind of granular level of analysis given all this. But it's just a theory um, that may be borne out that since this moment where she has 
a higher penetration in the news maybe coincides with this time where that that tightening eased up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Don't the, know. So the other issue, of course, in addition to the email, is the Clinton Foundation. And foundation is one of the words. It's much smaller than email in that word cloud. But it's another thing that often comes up when people are criticizing uh, the Clintons. And uh, so the, the uh, New York Times upshot wrote about um, – there's a poll where they were t- a thousand people chosen to be representative of registered voters nationwide, and they basically asked people, "What do you think the Clinton Foundation does?" and gave them a bunch of answers, some wrong, some right, just to see what people p- picked. So some of the answers that you could pick from were charitable fa- activities that the foundation engages in, things like combating AIDS, healthy food. Um, some things were sort of charitable or political activities that are not things that the foundation says they do, things like um, restoring art, you know, other things that other foundations think is important. And then finally, for-profit activities that are not things that are supposed to be core to the, what the foundation does, things like setting up speaking engagements for Hillary Clinton. Um, and Nearly half of registered voters don't know enough about the Clinton Foundation to say what it does at all. Um, and for those who think that they do know enough about what it does, half think that it it's about setting up speaking engagements, that like that's a thing that the Clinton Foundation does. Um, 47% though then do also say that it does stuff about combating AIDS in Africa. 29% say healthy school food. 43% say education and training for girls and women. Um of registered voters think the Clinton Foundation manages the personal finances of the Clinton family or gives money to Democrats. Yikes. That's pretty way off. That's that's pretty far off. Um, And the bottom line is that people just dislike the Clinton Foundation because it says Clinton. Yeah. I mean, this was was written by um, someone who's part of the monkey cage blog family, but it was written in the upshot, I believe. And what's interesting, well, I mean, a couple of things about it. First, I'm not surprised that people don't know much about a foundation, any foundation, even if it's one in the news that maybe mm-hmm. we've heard about. It doesn't mean that the, you know, that somebody who doesn't follow politics for a living would know what a foundation does, period. So we shouldn't be surprised that there's like a whole lot of, I don't know what they do going on here, just however much coverage this gets. Um, But it also is a sign that, you know, there's a partisan lens through which they view this and that, you know, the people are getting different kinds of information depending on uh, their own partisan proclivities. And, you know, it's not always correct information. And so this means it's both a it's a challenge for Clinton, obviously, if there's, you know, a misperception of what the foundation does. Um, It also says something about the news or the news that people are getting or the ability for messages from the other side to, to get out that are, you know, they're clearly not right. I mean, obviously the Clinton Foundation doesn't give money to Democratic candidates or manage personal finances or any of that stuff, especially in contrast. Now we're getting, I'm going to enter the blue zone, all the craziness that goes on with the Trump family foundation, you know, with well, the Trump that was, Foundation. That story that came out yesterday, the uh, Farenthold story about how I think he bought a painting of himself for 10 yeah. grand or something. So, yeah, this was when I was in New Mexico last week and I did that speaking gig with James Carville. I mean, he was really ticked off about this stuff and what he views as a faux false equivalency when people are like, yeah, but the Trump Foundation, yeah, but the Clinton Foundation, he's like, they're not equivalent. What was his point was that, you know, that the Trump Foundation is there's no record of it actually doing any good at all. Whereas, say what you will about the Clintons, there is some record of the Clinton Foundation having made a positive benefit. There may also be other questions about the influence side of things or whatever. But right, he was but like, there's no smoking gun of any kind on the Clinton side, and there's like a thousand question marks and so smoking was, guns. So Carville on, on the, was way fired up about like. And like, and they're going after the reporter. The Trump campaign is going after the reporter without any kind of actual factual correction. They're like, it's wrong, and they haven't said anything about why it's wrong. So it's well, this but is all of it's in the two in the weeds for most people to well. And this is one of the things. Of. So this is so Margie is the team blue. I'm team red, but I often get accused of being a really bad team red because I'm. That's why we get along so I well. Just, <laughs> I just just can't get there on Trump a lot of time. Um, but one of the things that. Uh, I, I said in an interview today with a, a journalist from Australia is I said, like, a problem Hillary Clinton is going to have in these debates is if she gets kind of called out on something by a reporter or by the moderator or asked a question where it's like, well, you said this, but then you said that. 
I can see you're kind of like dancing around it and trying to like have the political answer that like hues as close to the truth as possible, even if it's kind of mushy or like straight. You know. Whereas you could be like Donald Trump. One time you said that two plus two was five. He'd be like, no, I didn't. Next question. He'd be like, no, right. no, no. But we we have a tape. No, what that you made that tape up. That's not correct. That's not what I said. You've taken it out of context. Next question. Right. Like that he just he's so okay with just being like, nope. I choose my own reality, and everyone come join me in it. That like that's going to make these debates just wild. Yeah. Well, yeah. So we'll add that to Lester Holt's to do list. Add that to Lester Holt's to do list. Um. So w- one other finding that I think is pretty interesting. So the Pew again. I think Pew is also no longer in the business of doing horse race polling. Right. I mean, they have asked the votes. Right. They. I guess they use that as a cross tab. Although ask the vote, but they're not like this week. Pew shows Clinton Cl- up. To yeah. Win. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So, but they did ask, "How will you feel if the following?" outcomes occur if hillary clinton wins or if donald trump wins and only 11 percent of voters would be excited about donald trump winning and only 12 percent of voters would be excited about hillary clinton winning but but that doesn't mean that they both um are treated the exact same in this question for donald trump if you combined excited and relieved the two positive answers you still only get to 37 percent Meanwhile, you have a healthy majority. 59% of people say they would be disappointed or angry if Donald Trump became president. For Hillary Clinton, even though only 12% of people say that they would be excited if she was president, you have a big chunk that say they would be relieved. And so in total, you wind up with about half of voters say that they would be either excited or at least relieved if she was president. So this goes to my my column from last week was all about how Hillary Clinton needs to be the candidate for people who are really anxious and nervous about this election and just be like, look, if I get elected, you can breathe a sigh of relief that like the world's not going to end. Right. That would be a very smart strategy for her. Right. And that's, you know, I mean, I think people want to look at a, a data point like this and say, aha, people are not excited about Hillary Clinton. I knew it. And it could just be that Donald Trump is so odious that, you know, it, it, you have Hillary Clinton versus a asteroid about to hit Earth. Of course, you're going to be relieved. It doesn't mean you're not excited about Hillary Clinton. It means that there was an asteroid about to hit Earth. And that's how some of us on the left feel, or I guess most of us on the left feel about Donald Trump. So it's not a surprise to me that lots of folks say that they would be relieved as opposed to excited if um, Clinton wins. But there's also some other cool stuff from this Pew poll that has um, some open-end, open-ended questions. Uh, they ask people why. You, what is your concern about your own candidate that you're voting for? Um, so even among Trump supporters, a plurality are worried about his temperament uh, or unpredictability. Among Clinton supporters, um, a plurality say they don't know what their top concern is about hers, which is, you know, a better finding for her than it is for him that a plurality of his own supporters say, you know, his temperament is a problem. Um, they also ask, what's your main reason why you're not why uh why you're supporting that candidate and a plurality for both say well they're not the other person so a plurality of trump voters say i'm i'm with him because he's not her and a slight or i guess tied for first of clinton supporters say well she's not him but again asteroid is hitting the earth <laughs> an asteroid is coming for earth mod 2016 <laughs> sweet meteor o death yeah one of the best twitter accounts out there yeah and also bringer of the apocalypse that's right uh, and follower of the pollsters follower of the pollsters <laughs> uh so then you and huffington posted a survey of a thousand uh, u.s adults and they wanted to figure out do people think these candidates are too extreme so you can actually argue that donald trump may be temperamentally extreme while being kind of ideologically mushy like he's not a limited government slash the deficit kind of guy so right. so so how do you do, so is extreme about ideology or is extreme about sort of temperament and like approach to issues right. like like oh we're not just gonna pick like a you know a kind of a little bit of an immigration reform we're gonna have a deportation squad right and like, but then there's also this other axis of he just doesn't have any idea what he's doing right that's a whole other you know you could be nice or have a good temperament or have sound policies but if you you know don't or you say you have sound policies but if you can't flesh out the details because you're not a policy person that's a whole separate 
vulnerability, and he has that one too. So I don't know how you know. I mean, but so on it's this, too late. He can't tease them all apart. But that's another wrinkle. In but this. voters certainly do think that he is more extreme than Hillary Clinton on balance. So forty-one percent of voters think Hillary Clinton is too extreme, but forty-nine percent say no, she's not too extreme. Where for Donald Trump, fifty-seven percent do think he's too extreme, while only a third say he has not. Um, since she won the Democratic nomination, majority of people think Hillary Clinton has stayed the same. Um, whereas for Donald Trump, you actually have uh, only 35 percent think he's stayed the same. But then of people who think he's changed, gotten more or less extreme, those people are kind of split. So you have about 27 percent who think Donald Trump has gotten mushier. He's made the pivot to the general election. While not many people think Hillary Clinton has made a pivot. On the other hand, fewer people think she needed to in the first place. Right. And this is we don't have this graph in in here, but I think there was some analysis that was released today about um and we've seen this in other polls, that part of the reason that Trump has been doing better is because he's been consolidating Republicans. He's not going and getting Democrats who are voting for Clinton. He is consolidating some Republicans by making them, you know, by either they're coming home because it's time to come home to the party or because he's giving them the peace of mind that he's going to be a little bit less crazy and erratic from moment to moment, whatever it is. Um, but that's that could be part of what's behind this number. Well, so let's take a little bit of a, a trip then. Oh, let's let's talk really quickly about the federal government, trust in the federal government before we jump Oh, yeah, into we have one bit of good news. <laughs> Despite all these terrible, you know, numbers about people feeling unhappy about the election or feeling worried or panicked or what have you, there is some good news. It's something we, we don't ever see in num- ratings about the federal government. There's actually been improvement in ratings of the federal government. Gallup has shown, um, whether it's judicial branch, executive branch, branch, legislative branch, they have all rebounded in terms of the amount of trust, uh, which sounds pretty great, right? Until you look beneath the surface and then you're like, oh, right, of course. Team Um, R is not feeling great. No. So it's just, it's then what you'd expect. So it's all coming from Democrats. So the improvement mostly comes from Democrats in terms of them feeling better about the executive branch. So you have a lot more trust, you have more trust among Democrats in the executive branch than you had in the past couple of years. You have more trust in the judicial branch among Democrats, probably because of recent uh, Supreme Court decisions on things like gay marriage and Obamacare. Um, but you have uh, more Republicans showing some trust in the legislative branch. That's where that's coming from. Not having any more trust, if anything, less trust. All those in hey the girl, other... it's Paul Ryan memes are really starting to work. I know. <laughs> that's right. Slowly but surely. <laughs> so anyway, so it's maybe not, it's not like everybody's like, oh, you know what? Maybe the federal government is doing a pretty good job. It's, no, it's, it's, it's just, all about party. Like, it's all about party. How much is your party running the show? Yeah. Okay. So now this is, I think, the coolest story of the week. Um, So Margie and uh, Patrick at at Echelon and a couple of other researchers all got approached by Nate David Rothschild, who's been a guest on our show. And he and I did O'Reilly Factor together last night to talk about this very thing. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. It was – well, we'll get to that in a second. Oh, cool. He was a good sport. He was a very good sport. <laughs> and it was Brett Bear guest hosting, so it was not Papa Bear. It right, was right, like right. It was a more um, hospitable environment. That's right. Um, although I was stupid and I wore jeans to the segment because normally when you do these TV hits, it's just the waist up and like whatever. And I'm like, oh, it's O'Reilly Factor. Sure. And then I'm like, oh, no, Brett Bear is get host, guest hosting and he's based in D.C. Oh, no. So I'm going to be sitting on the set with him, but I'm already here in makeup. Luckily, you couldn't see it, but. Yeah, I felt like a real moron walking onto that set. Or you're like a pro. You're to... like, I don't, I don't Whatever. care. I'm in jeans. I'm just like jeans. the, like the, you know, the dudes who go on no TV and they don't wear, they're barely even wearing a collar, let alone a jacket or tie. <laughs> now I'm like, <laughs> which annoys me. But anyway, yeah. I don't know why that annoys me so much. I just, I find um, that but so anyhow, annoying. so then, so so Nate Cohn, friend of the show, sort of orchestrated this thing, and the idea was there are lots of things that pollsters can do. Intentionally or unintentionally to affect the result of a poll. Some of these things are pretty well known, right? How you word a question can affect how somebody responds. Um, what order the questions are in can affect how someone responds. Whether you do online versus telephone, that can affect it. Who you decide to call and where you get your sample, that can affect it. 
But that's still not the only things that can affect it. And so what Nate wanted to do was keep everything the same on that front. So you have one survey, same questionnaire, same sample, exact same interviews. You take that one data set, that one raw file, and you give it to four different pollsters. And you say, apply your weights. So pollsters, for our new listeners, typically you will take a raw data file and you will add something to it called weights where you you basically – then make the survey look a little more like what we know reality is. It's supposed to sort of address or eliminate any kind of bias you might have encountered through your sampling so that your end result looks a little more like what you think reality is. Or just be. error. It doesn't have to be biased. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, you know. Yeah, I don't mean bias as like intentional, error, like fluctuation kind of media stuff. bias. Um, yeah, that sort of thing. So Waiting is totally normal. And also it makes it easier, too, if you're comparing apples to apples. Like, okay, well, party ID didn't change, you know, six points overnight. Yeah. So is what's really happening here? So waiting is a totally normal thing that is done to – I would say every single public poll you're looking at has had weights applied. But this is where it becomes an art in addition to being a science. There are judgment calls to be made about how you do this waiting process. So Margie, you and your colleagues, you chose to do a certain style of, of waiting. Um, tell, tell me a little bit about what you decided to do. So if you go to the store, you can see little descriptions, little paragraphs from what everybody did. And they also showed how everybody turned all the, well, what all the results were in terms of the four-way head-to-head. So the upshot and their official release had a one-point advantage for uh, for Clinton. And then three of the pollsters, including my team, had an advantage for Clinton. And then one team had a one-point Trump advantage. And so, the you know, we had a, a four-point Clinton advantage. Uh, Charles Franklin had a three-point Clinton advantage. Uh, Patrick had a one-point Clinton advantage, like the upshot. And then the other folks, David Rothschild and his gang had a one point Trump advantage. And so what we, what made this all different is just, you know, there are a couple different things that people did differently. One is, um, what variables you're looking at, right? What variables are you waiting? So Rothschild et al., they just did vote history. They just looked at the vote history on the file. So the records of how often people voted. Did they vote in, you know, 2012? Did they vote in midterms? Were they new registrants and so on? They, it, from my understanding of, of how I read it, that that's all that they waited. Everybody else used some adjustment of some demographic variable, gender or party or race or ethnicity. Um, it, it, it's unclear exactly how much everybody applied, but just some tweak in some way. We also, what we did is we um, excluded some people who were not voters, um, who said that they were not going to vote. If they said in self-report, I am definitely not voting, we took them at their word. It's not that they can't be convinced, but if you, you know, given the social de- desirability bias, if you say I'm not going to vote, then, you know, then then that's, you know, seems at this stage, it's a high likelihood you're not going to vote. Um, the other thing that we did is, you know, we looked at the data. We also looked at other past public polling and the poll came in unweighted, you know, a little bit more democratic than past public polling. The unweighted data had a seven-point Clinton advantage. So, you know, the the way we approach this is like, you know, there are two options. One is you can adjust this a little bit and maybe you are missing something that's actually happening um, or you're adding statistical error by adding more weights. Um, the other option is you are – you know, you you weight it to match what other public polling it looks like, and then you're more in line with what um, with what you know polls that were taken around the same time. So these are the tricky conversations that you have whenever you weight data. We're also comparing when we looked at the past public polling weighted data. So we don't know what their unweighted data look like. If we had done this for a client, we would have had our own unweighted data set of every other poll where we would just compare unweighted to unweighted to make sure we were comparing apples to apples. And so part of the reason why you would see something like the the David Rothschild, he, he's with Microsoft Research. We've interviewed him on the show. His interview is kind of cool. It's me and him. We're standing outside a bathroom at a conference. So I think you like hear the bathroom door opening and closing, but it's otherwise a really, I think, interesting interview where he talks talks about how you can sort of spin spin straw into gold when it comes to, uh, you know, internet polling and things like that. But, you know, if you are using a model that really just looks at turnout history, it actually doesn't surprise me that they were the ones that found the most favorable 
Trump result because if you're just looking at turnout history, who tends to have the best voter turnout records? It tends to be older, whiter folks. I mean, in Florida is the state that we're talking about for this right. survey. So it, does, it makes sense to me that if you're all you're looking at is vote turnout history, you're going to get an awful lot of Trump favorable whiter voters. And turnout also generally favors Republicans as well, right? Yeah. So you add all that together, it makes a lot of sense. And so, you know, for Patrick at my firm, you know, the way he approached it was one, you have some demographic weights and you decide you're going to wait on some basic things, age, gender, et cetera. But then even once you decide what variables you want to wait on, you have different options of what you want to wait Two. So there are a few options. One of them is you can wait to the exit poll results from the previous election. Nobody did that in this case, and that is a pretty controversial uh, – it's a choice that some people make, but it's controversial. So then the other options where you can wait to what we know the demographics are from the voter file. So yes, we only talk to 1,000 voters in Florida, but you can get that full millions and millions and millions of people spreadsheet and know – Okay, 70% of them are white or whatever the demographic targets were. I don't remember off the top of my head. And say, okay, we know that out of all registered voters in Florida, 7 out of 10 are white. So in my sample, 7 out of 10 should also be white. And if not, I need to nudge it around. Um, But then you also have, again, that screen where you're figuring out, well, who's likely to turn out or not? Sure, white respondents may be 70% of registered voters in Florida, but does that mean they'll be 70% of people who go to the polls, or will it be bigger or smaller? This is all where judgment comes in. So the exact same survey, just based on pollsters using reasonable judgment. Nobody here is trying to put their thumb on the scale to get a result for a particular candidate. Nonetheless, we had a range of Clinton plus four to Trump plus one from the exact same survey. Right. Very cool, fascinating stuff. It is very cool. I mean, even some of the details like, are you looking at the respondents self-reported race and ethnicity, or are you looking at the race and ethnicity that's coded on the file? Even that can make a difference in what you find, because what we found was this, the what people self-reported their race and ethnicity be just a little bit different than what the voter file had. And, and Florida is a Voting Rights Act state, so you're going to have better records on the voter file there of people's race and ethnicity than you will have in other states. So you have that advantage in Florida that you don't have elsewhere. But even so, you have... You know, the unweighted file came in 20% Latino if you self-reported, the, asking people what their ethnicity was. It was a little bit lower. I don't remember exactly, maybe 16 or 15% uh, based on the voter file of yeah. Latino. And that's just what their coding was. So even that kind of distinction can make a difference. Well, I would encourage everybody to take a look at this. Check it out. Um, we should get Patrick on the show to talk about this at some point. He'd probably get a big kick out yes, of that. Yes, he did a little bit of a tweet a tweet storm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll have to ask tweet him. Tweet cloud. Or he can like he can sit in and guest host one week if, I'm, if I like go MIA. And then he will be a campaign manager for the next Republican nominee. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to go right to the top. You laugh. Four years from now, we're going to come right back to this episode oh and be God, like, it's the moment right. we knew. This, this is our- Patrick's path to running. <laughs> the 2020 Republican nominee Ben campaign. Sass in 2020 or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's wrap on the story that really is driving the conversation in America this week. The Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie split. And by the way, I just need to throw out there, we've talked for the last couple of weeks about how Margie and I have now stumbled onto some PR pitch list where we just get the most off-the-wall pitches. Like – Celebrity kid approved products and God knows what else. Snookies, Snookies dance class. Oh, yeah, we got the Snooky dance class. That one was a good one. Um, th- this week, right before we came in here, we got a pitch about some kind of like lip product that I'm not going to name because then I would actually be giving, I would be like doing exactly what the PR person wants. But I will say <laughs> the pitch included the phrase. There's no way they listen to our show because they sent us that. I know. <laughs> they, they they clearly don't listen to our show because they do not have any idea what it is we do or understand that <laughs> under no hens, I'm sure they talk about makeup. <laughs> those two hens. Uh, quote, Angelina Jolie's marriage may be over. One thing, though, remains the same. Her full and sexy lips. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, wow. Her lips Let live me on. read more of this pitch. They are back on the market. Nope. Deleted. Um, so we then took a look. YouGov has done a poll where they ask the world's most admired people. And in May of 2016, Angelina Jolie, by a pretty wide margin, it looks like, 
was the world's most admired woman. Um, yeah. Which, again, people always say that it's Hillary Clinton, but it's actually Angelina Jolie, folks. I think it's Gallup asked it PolitiFact, set think, the record straight. I think Gallup did, probably did not have Angelina Jolie in their list. Um, number Celine two. Dion. Why is, is Celine Dion so high in this list? Anyway. Why would Celine Dion not be high on the list? I'm sorry, number six in the world? I mean. Admired. She's pretty great, Margie. Well, we'll just have to disagree. We'll just <laughs> my best come. friend from high school, Shane, he's going to be so proud that I defended See, we Celine dis- Dion. We on disagree show. sometimes. It's bipartisan. Here. Um, Celine, although Celine Dion is a- above Malala on this list, so yeah, this is pretty terrible. I don't know about that. Um, you have Angela Merkel, who's on the list. Uh, Sandra Bullock is on there, as is Shakira and Madonna. Um, for men, ooh, Lionel Messi is on that list. That's fun. Okay, number one for men is Bill Gates. Number two is Barack Obama. Um, Brad Pitt, not on this list. Mm. So certainly you would assume that more Americans would side with Angelina than Brad. Um, But as we were walking in here to do the show, got a a tweet from Emily Swanson um, pointing out that there is a poll that the Roper Center has in its records. That's great. Conducted uh, November 2010. And when I read the poll response options, you'll get that this is a pretty outdated It's not poll. really fresh. Hot this is the not process. fresh data. Um, Vanity Fair in 60 Minutes did this poll where they said, if something tragic happened to you and your children were going to be raised by some other couple and you had to pick a celebrity couple, which celebrity couple would you want taking care of your kids? So Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith come out on top among the celebrity couples at 25%. Ellen DeGeneres and Portia de Rossi at 7%. Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie at 6%. Tom Cruise and Katie Holmes at 3%. I mean, obviously not. Like I told you guys, this is an old poll. Um, even at their height, but anyway. Even at the height of Tomcat. But 44% said, no, I'd prefer some nice couple from Iowa. <laughs> and that is literally the response option. <laughs> Thanks, Vanity Fair. Well done. That was excellent. Thank you, Emily Swanson, who we know from her days when she was at the Huffington Post pollster, but now she's at AP covering polling there. So The Fempire expands. That's right. So thanks. <laughs> she, was, she knew that that was exactly what we needed, and she was right. Thank you, Emily. <laughs> All right. So, Margie, what did we learn this Our week? Our key findings. Who says millennials are sh- selfish? Half of millennial guys have cats. Maybe for Clinton, no news is good news. And if the polls are getting a little too tight for comfort, maybe you need to lose weight. Oh, God. (laughs) If you don't like the results of your poll, just wait. (laughs) Always good to see fellow pollsters weigh in. (laughs) That's it. That's all I got on that. (laughs) Who's going to get more? I feel like you'll be proud of your punning. (laughs) uh, Who's going to get more of a post-breakup bounce? Brad or Angelina? We are on it. And welcome new (laughs) listeners. Tweet us. Your complaints, maybe we'll read them. <laughs> you can find us on Twitter at, at the pollsters. Individually, we're at Margie O'Meara and at Kay Soltis Anderson. You can find us at the new and improved www.thepolsters.com with our list of all of the pollsters on the planet. We're pretty maybe sure. You. Go- <laughs> maybe even you. Uh, follow us on Facebook where you can get links to the stories we might be chatting about in the upcoming week, as well as occasionally popping in to do a Facebook Live for you all. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to us on your favorite podcatcher. Be sure to tell your friends about the show and let us know what you think. Always, uh, we love to hear from you. Tweet at us or post reviews on places like iTunes. We love to hear it. Great. Thanks. When we listen to the radio, we never agree on the station. Classic rock. Hip-hop. Pop. Guys, quiet. The one thing we do agree on, we all want an awesome free phone. That's why we switched to MetroPCS. Stop by MetroPCS with the whole family and get four free phones of your choice from brands you love, like Samsung, Motorola, and LG when you switch. MetroPCS. Wireless. Figured out. Coverage not available in some areas. Sales tax not included in phone price. Free phone requires port. Excludes numbers on the T-Mobile network. See store for details and terms and conditions.